0: another magazine episode. Ukraine, economics, Baltics and Balkans, and even a little bit of monarchy. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia, In Moscow Shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So as I've said, this is going to be another rather episodic episode. And in particular, most of it's going to be taken up by questions I've received from patrons, glory be to them, and also listeners. But before I go on to that, I just wanted to pick up on three new stories, which of course are all directly or indirectly connected with Ukraine, that I think is worth dwelling on because of, again, what they really say about what might be coming down the line. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the military command structure in Ukraine. We've now had pretty much confirmation that instead of General Dvornikov, who we haven't seen for weeks now, now the new overall commander is Deputy Defence Minister Colonel General Gennady Zhidko. Now, it's interesting that it's a Deputy Defence Minister. It may be that they felt they needed to have someone with even more institutional firepower, shall we say in order to ensure that uh, his orders really were respected on the field. But more likely, I think, it's institutional firepower back in Moscow. And as we'll come to in in a moment, uh, there is clearly a sense now that, given that this is a very attritional war, and it's one which is really draining Russia's not just sort of stocks of trained personnel, but also equipment, that we're beginning to see the contours of, shall we say, a war-based economy around it. So obviously, the military have to have a powerful voice to ensure that they get the kind of economy that they need. Because after all, it's quite interesting that he himself is not what one would have thought of as the you know, real powerhouse within the military. I mean, clearly, look, he's a deputy defence minister. That in itself is, is a strong sign. But he's actually been surprisingly low-profile. Uh, he is a hero of Russia because of his role as a chief of staff to the commander in Syria. But again, it's interesting, he didn't actually command operations in Syria. Um, he was head of the Eastern Military District, a very large military district, and also one from which many of the forces that have then been uh, surged into Ukraine have been drawn from. And then from there, he was main military political directorate chief which is a sort of funny appointment. It's in some ways a Soviet-era political institution without the Soviet-era ideology. So it's really about personnel issues, about morale issues and, and such like, which, again, in theory might suggest that he's going to address the issue of quite how Russia's soldiers feel about their conduct in the war. But, again, nothing really has come up from his track record to show that that's a particular interest of his. It was more just part of his corso and part of his just general track upwards through the military bureaucracy. But still, the fact that there is a, a pretty important figure now as the overall sort of coordinating front commander, that may say something. We'll have to see what it means on the field. About the only, to me, interesting thing to really to be said about his... Uh, Backstory is that he actually used to serve under, but has since leapfrogged General Lapin, who is head of the central group of forces. So, in other words, the the northern side of the Russian military effort in in Ukraine. And there is some chatter, again, it's hard to know if it's just simply people making up random rumors, but anyway, some chatter that that Lapin and Zhitko do not now have the best of all relationships. So there's a, a splendid point of additional friction just to throw in. But the real sort of group of forces commander who's worth dwelling on briefly is Colonel-General Sergei Surovikin, who has now been appointed commander of the southern group of forces. So you might say both the central and the southern group of forces are the main sort of offensive elements uh, operating in Ukraine. Now, Surovikin is an interesting, if not necessarily particularly pleasant, individual. What's really fascinating is he has just been transferred from being commander of the air forces. And I say air forces because there are sort of multiple within the military aerospace sort of command. It's not that he was a pilot or anything, he's actually a career ground forces officer. But he was brought in to head the air forces in part because he's regarded as a relatively innovative and flexible military thinker in part because they wanted to make sure that coordination between the Air Force and the ground forces are better. And to be honest, that has been, after all, one of the weaknesses, one of the many weaknesses of the Russian operations in Ukraine. So, at least so far, he doesn't look like he's had a great impact. The thing is, I mean, Surovikin is, you know, really quite a hard-charging figure. He is a potential replacement for General Gerasimov as Chief of the General Staff. He's substantially younger, he certainly is, no one is going to question his reputation as a soldier, even if one can question his reputation in other ways. He has, after all, something of a chequered career. In the 1991 August coup, he actually was one of the soldiers, one of the commanders, willing to obey the coup plotters, and people died when he forced his army unit through a cordon of protesters. In due course, I mean, Yeltsin not only exonerated him, but uh, did so you know, enthusiastically. I'm um, saying, you know, he's exactly just an honourable warrior who you know, obeyed orders. But still, that stuck. There was a point when he was accused of having stolen and sold a service pistol, but that sort of case went away. But that doesn't really tell us much. He may have been innocent, or he may just simply have ensured that, in classic Russian fashion, the accusations disappeared. Perhaps most striking and scandalously was the fact that one of his subordinates actually shot himself in Surovikin's own office. I'm not sure if he himself was there at the time, I suspect not, following a particularly scathing review he had had from his commander. So, you know, this is is not an easy man to get on with, but one who is thought to get results. And, of course, he will have much to play for. His career could well depend on how well his forces perform in in Ukraine. And if he does have his sights on the chief of the general staff's position, he's probably going to want to do something quite dramatic quite soon. Whether he will have much scope to do so is another matter. But nonetheless, I mean, Sorovikin has served as a commander twice in uh, Syria. We may see more use of of air power and we may see more willingness to basically blow the hell out of anything in his way. Not that there's much scope for, for escalation there. But still, you know, again, under some circumstances, one could regard this as a sign of desperation, of confusion, of disorganisation, or whatever. I think that that's wishful thinking. To be perfectly honest, this is the military doing what the military does in these circumstances. It's facing with a situation where it's not quite sure what it needs and who's able to provide it, and therefore it's testing out different officers. And when they don't seem to be up to the task, which may well be an impossible task, but that's a whole other matter, then they switch them out and put someone else in. So in some ways, I think this is more a series of continued on-the-job auditions rather than anything else. And it's a mark of the way in which you know, the Russians clearly are getting used or have gotten used to the idea that this is going to be a long war. It's going to be a war that they'll win with both on the battlefield and in the wider political scene through endurance and will, rather than through some sudden gambit. Of course, if it's a long war, then it's going to be well, increasingly central to you know, all of Russian high politics. And therefore it's perhaps unsurprising, but worth noting, that Sergei Kiryenka, the increasingly ambitious and increasingly visible deputy head of the presidential administration, who you know, up to now was the guy who basically stage-managed the domestic political scene, but clearly understanding that that's likely to become much, much less of a factor as this regime becomes more and more authoritarian, he is reinventing himself as, as, as one uh, commentator perhaps rather unfairly put it, the new sort of would-be Gauleiter of the Donbass. Well, OK, putting aside the emotive language, I mean, I think it is clear that he is pitching himself as the person who can handle the political dimension of conquest and presumably annexation. Because he now has visited the Kharkiv region, so both the towns of Izum and Kupiansk, And again, this is uh, on the one hand probably signalling that these are areas that could well also get um, swallowed up if there is some kind of mass annexation. It's a chance for him to demonstrate that he is kind of at the front lines, so no, he's willing to take risks, and and he's out there building the new provinces of Russia, and it's worth noting that generally where he goes, Russian passports tend to follow. So again, I think we will see a renewed campaign, even in these bits of Kharkiv region, for the so-called passportisation, making people or encouraging people to sign up for Russian passports, basically becoming Russian citizens, if nothing else, as a a kind of a mark that Russia plans to be here to stay. It's a, you know, sort of a, a way of trying to change the facts on the ground ahead of any possible or potential peace talks, though those peace talks are nowhere in view. And thirdly, another sign I would suggest of the degree to which Russia has sort of Internalised, or when I say Russia, the Kremlin has internalised that this is going to be a long war and a war that has to be won the hard way. State Duma is considering a draft amendment to the law on defence, which would mean that even in the context of a quote unquote special military operation, can't call it a war, but anyway, even in that context, essentially wartime economic mobilisation measures can be introduced. So everything from forcing uh, workers in strategic industries to take compulsory overtime to mobilising additional capacity that is being kept precisely as wartime stocks to indeed not allowing companies to refuse government contracts in this context. So I think this is all signs that the special military operation is really going to be considered as a war, as a long-term venture as one to which all the efforts of the Russian state, society and economy must be directed, but they're still trying to have their cake and eat it. They're still wanting to have a wartime economy without calling it a war. And I think this is a particularly worrying sign because I think it represents a degree to which, slowly, bit by bit, the technocrats are being pushed back that in fact, although the the early attempts by the Siloviki to basically bring about uh, war communism without the communism, failed. Just simply an, an appreciation of the pressures, an appreciation of the needs of supplying the war effort, but also continuing at least a sort of a basic level of economic activity within the country, is going to require more and more government intervention and government control, whether directly or, as in this case, indirectly. This is pretty much anathema to the technocrats, but I just don't think they really have any kind of alternative that they can offer. And it's also worth noting that it's a bit of a political gambit by Valodyin, the Speaker of the State Duma, and someone who, you know, if nothing else, is also a, a personal as well as political rival of Kiryanka's to demonstrate that the state Duma has a role in these times. It's too easy just to think that everything is just there to be an instrument of the Kremlin. And yes, that is ultimately their function in many ways, but they also have agency. They also seek to present themselves as having value. And Valodin is here to show that he has value because, by extension, the institution that he choreographs for the Kremlin also has value. So there's a lot of kind of internal politics that, that, that is at work there and in some ways that actually acts as a very neat segue into the first of the various series of questions that I wanted to address and I should say that generally I'll be paraphrasing these questions either for brevity or else because often there sort are of multiple questions essentially are asking the same thing but anyway this question was was the war actually not about the ostensible reasons of geopolitics and so forth but really driven by economic interests, particularly of people within Putin's inner circle who stood to gain from it. And the particular example, the obvious example to use, would be Yevgeny Prigozhin, so-called Putin's chef, who is essentially one of the, sort of the go-to guys that the Kremlin uses for economic operations, and in particular, as well as the troll farms, is associated with the Wagner Mercenary Organization, which is clearly currently providing a variety of forces in Ukraine. Well, look, I don't actually think that it was driven by that. It may well be that certain individuals who actively sort of supported the idea were thinking that they themselves would, would gain. That's, you know, in, in, entirely possible. But I don't think that either they were able to shape Putin's imagination to that degree, or that he was in hock to them. I mean, if you take someone like Prigozhin, it's worth noting, I mean, this is a man whose career depends on doing what the Kremlin tells him to do. And so long as he does that, he enriches himself. But he doesn't have the kind of autonomy, I would suggest, to actually be able to really push a policy, and particularly a policy of this scale. Rather, I think, that you know, obviously, though, we are seeing, for example, Wagner active there. I get the sense though that although they are offering really quite substantial sums of money to anyone willing to sign up after all the Russian military is desperate for for warm bodies particularly for more skilled and trained soldiers to fight but I'm not getting the sense that there is a similar bonanza for the financial backers behind Wagner and that may basically means the the Concord group rather I think this is an example of a general process which we could can describe as the conscription of the adhocrats. In other words, all these funny shapes, when I say funny, I mean bizarre rather than entertaining, shadowy people and organisations that operated in the interface areas, in the grey zones, if I can use that expression, between the public and the private, between the state, the uh, corporate, and in some cases, the criminal. All of these who really have, have obviously... Often done very well under Putin precisely by doing what they thought or they knew Putin wanted doing. Well, that's fine. They had the good times. Now they're having to, I wouldn't say pay for it, but uh, realize that there is an obligation there. And I think this is it because these are people who are entirely dependent on the goodwill of the, of the, of the state. These are not people like the so sort of called oligarchs who depend on the state not deciding to prosecute them and expropriate their assets, but nonetheless, in their main, have real assets. Their economic empires are not just simply dependent on getting advantages from the Kremlin, being able to monopolise certain markets and such like. So I think actually, unlike the oligarchs, the adhocrats, like, like Prigozhin, are now being told you've had your good times, now you're having to pay for it. So no, I don't think it's being driven by economic interests, but of course people will try and find whatever economic interests they can in the midst of it. But just very few people can in aggregate terms. It's quite interesting, it's worth noting that you know, even um, powerful economic actors like uh, Chim Izov, head of Rostec, which is a sort of technology, but particularly with technology with a defence and security angle uh, conglomerate, very close to Putin... Even he is reportedly, allegedly, but plausibly, associated with that camp which frankly would rather this war were ended sooner rather than later. And you'd think actually that Rostek would be a, a net winner from any kind of conflict. And the answer it becomes clear, no, not so much. Small controlled conflicts like Syria, brilliant. Big mass existential struggles like this one, not so much not least because all their assets outside the country now become toxic and all frozen. So that, I think, is the situation. I think that people will gain if they can. They will profiteer when, when it's feasible. But this wasn't a war driven by economic interests. And the second question, and what I'll do is the first half, I'll, I'll talk about the war in one form or another, and then a break, and I'll talk about other issues. So if you are also tired of the war, hang in there. We'll get there. And the question is again: Several people asked us, with sort of different uh, particular potential targets in mind. If Putin is able to succeed in Ukraine, will he go on to attack the Baltic states or Poland or Kazakhstan? Well, look, I can understand this concern, especially when you've now got you know blowhards in the Duma suggesting that uh, Russia retract its recognition of Baltic independence and Putin getting into a bit of a spat with the Kazakh leader Tokayev and talking about sort of the uh, restoration of historically Russian lands, which implies something, you know, about northern Kazakhstan. But in practice, I don't think this is at all likely. First of all, I mean, what does victory mean? If we are talking about victory in the sense of a total conquest of Ukraine, it is not going to happen. I mean, who knows what will happen in the Donbass, whether or not Russia will indeed be able to extend its control there and to de facto establish long-term its dominance over both the Donbass and the Crimean Corridor. I think that, for me, is the best possible outcome for the Russians. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's a probable outcome, despite the, the slow incremental gains. Incremental seems to be the word of the moment for this. Um, gains being made by, by the Russian military currently, you know, after taking Severodonetsk. So, you know, victory victory is one of these difficult words that unfortunately we don't tend to define easily. But even if, let's say, the Russians do have some degree of success and they are able to impose an ugly peace on Ukraine, let's say Ukraine is exhausted and Ukraine fatigue means that the West is unwilling to support it as far as it needs and such like, even so, Putin will not be in a position, in my opinion, to, to launch any further wars of imperial aggression. Firstly, I mean, I don't think he necessarily wants to. U- Ukraine is it was a, a special case. Ukraine was part, in, you know, Putin has made it absolutely clear. He regards Ukraine as part of Russia's historic patrimony. And I think this idea that he could bring Belarus, Ukraine and Russia together, in effect, under his control... You know, I think that that's something that, that would have been t- truly important to him. But northern Kazakhstan, Poland, the Baltic states, I mean, these are areas where he, he's aware that there are Russian you know, interests in the case of northern Kazakhstan and little bits of the Baltic. I mean, I say Russian interests, I'm just simply saying as far as he's concerned. But otherwise, I mean, these are just simply places that are on Russia's borders. And in the case of the Baltics and Poland, they are in NATO. I cannot see any sign that Putin would be willing to challenge NATO, especially given the extent to which his military is being chewed through. Yes, they might be able to impose some kind of a victory over Ukraine through sheer force of numbers and the kind of willpower that an authoritarian regime can mobilise, because it doesn't care so much about what, what ordinary Russians are thinking. It cares a bit because it can't push them too far, but nonetheless it cares much less than any democratic state. But even then, its military will end up being in a disastrous and degraded state, just at the point at which the West is actually getting much, much more serious about defence. Now, of course, Western moves to increase defence spending and so forth will take a long time to actually manifest as tanks and such like on the border. But still, I mean NATO is, is just way too tough a nut to crack. And as regards Kazakhstan, well, I mean Kazakhstan is is not an inconsiderable country, but more to the point, I think, that China would be deeply unhappy if Russia started to seriously throw its weight around. Remember the thing about in Central Asia is that they look they have in the past at least looked to Russia as their security guarantor, and actually, in fairness, in the past Russia was a pretty good security guarantor for them. And they looked to China for the money, for the economic activity. And China was perfectly happy to let Russia have the trappings of the regional hegemon status. So long as basically it allowed the Chinese to do everything that the Chinese wanted to do. So I, I think that again, you know, Kazakhstan, it's hard to see why Putin would care enough. It's hard to think that the Russians would be looking for another potentially major war. And it's very, very hard to think that a Russia that has already lost any chance of any kind of a positive relationship with the West also wants to pick a fight with Beijing. So that, 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 that all counts as optimism in that respect. But if we're moving around the areas, what about the prospects for Russian influence in the Balkans, which in the past historically has been a particularly important focus for their activities Nothing really much seems to be happening. We had this abortive attempt by Lavrov to fly there. Foreign Minister Lavrov wasn't able to get there because of um, uh, airspace being banned to his jet. But what are we likely to see? Well, I mean, it's a little bit glib, but I'm tempted to say one of the key reasons why nothing much is happening as regards the Russians and uh, the Balkans is because Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patrushev is busy. Is busy giving some ridiculously hawkish speeches and interviews and kind of essentially trying to use this as an opportunity to expand his own powers within the system. And Patrushev in some ways had been appointed, anointed or at least accepted as the curator of Russian policy towards the Balkans. But of course, look, it's it's more than that we have to realise the degree to which, I mean, Russia had been really quite effective, I would suggest, in asserting an interest in the region that was totally disproportionate to its real connections, its real muscle, shall we say, economic, political and other. I mean, after all, this is a region where, on the whole, the country's want to be part of the European Union. Not necessarily because they regard the values of the European Union as theirs, not necessarily because they think it's got a pretty flag, but because, again, that's where the money is. Even Serbia, which has been Russia's closest ally, and which it's worth noting um, very recently, uh, uh, Vucic there, signed a three-year gas contract with um, the Russians. Um, but even Serbia, frankly, would like to join the European Union, and it's also been diversifying even its supplies of weaponry, which in the past was always very much, a, you know, an area in which they relied on the Russians to give them good deals, or even just simply give them hand-me-down, second-hand kit. Well increasingly, for example, the Chinese are stepping into that role. The problem is, as I said, that Russia is, firstly, has become a toxic brand. You just don't want to be associated with them. it's dangerous especially if you have hopes of incorporation into the Western community of nations. Secondly, Russia is not really that significant, although it has certain interests and obviously supplies of energy in some countries. But overall, even before the invasion, it only represented 3.9% of the total imports into the Western Balkans and took 2.7% of their exports. I mean, this is not a major player. The European Union is, you know, more than an order of magnitude more significant. And in some ways, the Russians really had benefited from their capacity to play the role of the spoiler, to play the role of the the, the um, ostensibly disinterested friend that says, you know, you, you're being hard done by. They had capitalised on the annoyance of many Western Balkan countries at the very slow pace of sort of prospects towards uh, European membership a sense that the European Union actually did not want reform it did not want democracy it wanted stability which is frankly a not entirely unfair assessment and also just general sort of sentimental slavic uh, ties and historic connections and so forth but when it comes down to it look at the moment it will be very hard for the russians to do anything for any of the western balkan countries any kind of high profile connection with Russia would be politically very, very dangerous for them. And there's no one really agitating for Balkan policy in Moscow, as I say, with with, with Patrashev, you know, otherwise engaged. So I think for all those reasons this is why Russia is not present. Can that change? It could perhaps, but I then I think the key thing is it's gonna be a case of that the European Union gets to define the level of space that Russia has to operate in the Balkans. And I think I have well I do hope that the European Union that Brussels generally isn't so concerned with the war and with its own in, internal sort of uh, issues that it forgets the importance of at least being able to demonstrate that just as you're talking now to Ukraine and Moldova about membership, you know, they're now EU candidates. Well, so too you need to make the other countries of the the Balkans not feel neglected. That is the only thing that is, frankly, going to give the Russians any kind of serious traction. So it's all for Brussels to lose. Moving on, can Russia afford a long war? You know, is is the oil pot bottomless? And you know, frankly. Is the need to support the war going to mean that there's going to be no money for other things like education and infrastructure and everything else? Well, look, yes. I mean, there is an interesting parallel here between Russia and the West. Clearly, this war is going to have very, very serious impacts on a whole variety of other areas of government spending. Quite disastrous in some cases just as, I mean, not quite so disastrous, but just as you know, it is going to have much more an impact on Western government spending than our political leaders, frankly, are willing to admit. I mean, there's a lot of generic talk about staying the course, paying the price, etc., which is fine. I mean, that, that's what politicians are there for. But I think in terms of levelling with the electorates, about the degree to which you know this is going to be a long-term struggle, even when the war ends, the the implications are going to linger. Obviously, much much more for Russia than than for the West, and that you know we have to appreciate that just this is the, this is the price of being involved in a war, even if in the West's case, it is a non-kinetic war. It is a war of economics and politics and culture and so forth, but it's still a war, frankly, and wars have costs. Um, so yes, you know, it will have an effect. And particularly the issue of the um, revenues from, from oil particularly, but also to an extent with gas. People sometimes look at the amount of money that is flowing into Russia and say, oh, this is why sanctions aren't working, this is why Putin is winning, etc. That is not the case. One should not assume that that money is necessarily all that usable. It's a slightly fanciful parallel, but in some ways I think of Russia today as being in the same sort of situation as a consumer in Soviet, late Soviet times, where typically you would have lots of rubles, but nothing in the shops that you could spend it on. And if you were going to buy something, you would probably have to buy it on the black market which was both risky, but also where the actual price was vastly higher than the official price that was set by the state. Okay, parallel only goes so far. But the, but the fact is that, that one should not assume that generous uh, amounts of uh, income necessarily can be translated into impact from the Russian state's point of view. It cannot actually convert this. I mean, you know, if you can't import things if you can't let's say um you know import cars and you only have two car plants still working in your country which is the the current situation for for russia you know you could promise to buy every russian citizen a car but the fact of the matter is there aren't enough cars to do it you know so yes you can use it to a degree but it's not quite so straightforward this is one of the areas in which sanctions are having a serious impact On the Russian state's capacity to convert apparent income into real effects. Now, can it afford a long war? I mean, ultimately, I think it can, up to the point that the regime survives, which is always the the uncertainty, but it can only in ways that sort of essentially mean that it substitutes political power for economic capacity that it will in in effect begin to become much more like a soviet economy in the longer term if it has absolutely has to do that to to maintain this war then it will and then finally before we have a break at the moment there is a big campaign in ukraine to de russify um which means you know often you know taking down statues renaming streets and such like and in some cases look this is absolutely uh, inevitable and understandable and indeed right and proper but on the other hand there is clearly a big um, cultural struggle which means that that uh, you know authors who have U- ukrainian connections if not always necessarily ukrainian nationality but which have been sort of appropriated by the russians are now being shunned by the ukrainians um and you know people like Pushkin and Gogol are sort of especially um, featured in this with monuments being withdrawn and such like um, there is for example a, a Ukrainian author who is uh, trying to make the case that all Pushkin streets throughout Ukraine should be renamed after Stephen King the horror novelist because of his outspoken support for the Ukrainian case I don't know I can't help but feel that if they, I mean, I, there's no evidence that they're actually going to go through this. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if, it, if it's sort of thing which, if it did happen, one can imagine that in 10 years' time, frankly, it would be regarded as embarrassing more than anything else. I think, look, here is the problem. I mean, should Ukraine actually try to, as I suppose it would call it, decolonize itself to, to that degree, to the degree to which almost it regards everything that, that, that is Russian or is touched with Russianness, or you know, authors who wrote in Russian or whatever as uh, hostile to the nation and therefore need to be excluded? Or should it appropriate? I mean, to me on, to me, I think the thing is because of the intertwined nature of Ukrainian history and culture, I would have thought that a much more healthy and productive but also entertaining approach is exactly as some have done. To turn it the other way around and to say, no, no, it is not that Ukraine is actually just some sort of temporarily mislaid part of the Russian patrimony. But rather that, you know, Kiev, after all, Kiev the Golden was the mother of, of, of Russian cities. The cradle of everything from, from the Russian Orthodox faith to the culture that, you know, in due course, spread across what ended up becoming the dominions of, of Muscovy that actually it is more that Muscovy is the sort of slightly kind of bastardised, uh, Mongolified offshoot of of Ukraine. And that, in fact, the best of of Russia is truly Ukrainian. Um, you know, these kind of cultural wars do have a certain resonance. And, you know, I, I think that to do otherwise, first of all, I really do wonder about the impact it'll have on Russian-speaking population, which after all regards itself in the main as loyal Ukrainians, how it will impact the pacification and the uh, reintegration that will need to be done if, as, and when Ukraine regains the areas of the Donbass that were sort of parts of the pseudo-states of the Lugansk and Donbass People's Republics. It also, in some ways, hands all of the Russian cultural greats to Putin. It is more or less reaffirming his own notion that, in fact, the best are all Russians. And, and finally, and look, I appreciate on one level this is an entirely sort of unfair and pointless thing to be worrying about in the middle of what is, after all, Ukraine's existential struggle for its survival as an independent nation. And its capacity to kind of reinvent itself as the kind of Western country, Western style country it wants to be. But, you know, even going on from the so sort of called heavenly hundred of, of the Euromaidan and so forth, there is a risk that Ukraine will find itself following the same kind of route that the Soviet Union did with the centralization of the Great Patriotic War as being in some ways the, the mythic wellspring of national and state legitimacy, the identifier that essentially shapes the nature of, of the country and so forth. I mean, there is a degree to which this becomes necromancy. That you actually sort of instead of looking forward and thinking, well, what can we be, what should we be, you spend all your time looking back and trying to hearken back to, to glory days. No, I mean I, I don't know. I mean I'm just saying raising that as a potential risk. I really do hope that the Ukrainians do not find themselves so much, in effect, in the thrall of a mythologised, memorialised history of this war. Look, the, the, the war is a phenomenal exploit already. The capacity of the Ukrainians to come together, the will, the determination. Again, I mean, we shouldn't overstate it. I mean, obviously they have morale problems too and such like. But so, you know, in, in the main, this is absolutely a crucial state-building moment. But there is a risk that it also becomes one that, in some ways, the Ukrainians psychologically don't go beyond. So I think, and in this respect, I think actually Zelensky is playing this absolutely right. I mean, he's very much focusing on this is a war for something. It is a war to build a certain kind of Ukraine. Um, And and I I hope that 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 continues. But certainly the attempts to basically try and artificially create an insulated and encapsulated Ukrainian culture... That is free from all "quote unquote" contamination of of Russianness, is, I think, to misrepresent and, in some ways, betray the, the, the rich and complex nature of Ukrainian history. But anyway, having sort of finished with that peroration, which will no doubt earn me a few uh, deeply critical emails, we'll have a break, and then I'll talk actually about a whole other issues relating to Russia. Just a usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash Shadows, And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, welcome back. Anyway, first question I want to come to, and look, obviously, Ukraine will continue to be a a thread through all of these, but now I'm actually looking more about the situation inside Russia. Anyway, the question was whether or not Russian propaganda was making a mistake by trying to downplay the impact of the sanctions. And it's interesting, because certainly Putin himself is being much more bullish these days. If one looks at his speech at the St Petersburg International Economic Forum... Um, not that it was quite that uh, international, um, you know. And generally, I mean, it is this notion that, as he put it, you know, the economic blitzkrieg against us has failed and such like. Now, I'm not quite sure how far this is propaganda, or on how far this genuinely represents uh, Putin's own understanding of the situation. You know, does he genuinely believe that, in some ways, it was like a kind of a, a military strike that you endure the first wave and then that's it? Or does he actually appreciate that the impact of the sanctions is incremental? To use that word again, it slowly scars and strangles, and the impact you know, will will continue for a long time. If it was never meant to be a blitzkrieg, it is actually much more about a kind of a, a meat grinder. So it speaks to this much wider issue that we've already had for quite some time, particularly relating to the war, is. What does Putin know? What does Putin understand? What are people telling him? And look, on one level you'd think that surely he must be getting accurate briefings, particularly given that the people in charge of the economy, on the whole, are technocrats. They, on the whole, are not ones who want to, in some ways, um, give the impression that the war was a sort of a great idea. I mean, again, I mean, I don't think many of them are actually saying, this is what your stupid war has done. Though Nabulina did come pretty damn close to it. But nonetheless, you know, is it that in fact they're just simply not getting the access? And this is the funny thing. Even now, Putin just doesn't seem to be spending a lot of physical time face-to-face with the people who actually are running the country for him. So, I mean, I, I honestly don't know whether whether this actually represents Putin's real belief. I have a suspicion that it does, I have a suspicion that this is a man who still lives in a world in which actually reality is determined by what he wanted to be. Uh, it's interesting that you know if one looks at his response to the failure of the initial invasion um and you know for a while he seemed he seemed pretty rough, you know he we we he we had all these kind of um footage of of him with some strange physical symptoms, we had some strange and intemperate emotional outbursts, you know, just generally, this, this seemed to be a man in trouble. And I can't help, and look, this is a, it's a little bit actually like, there's what's it, God, Godwin's Law, which is about how quickly arguments devolve into raising Adolf Hitler as a parallel. Well, obviously, we, we, we really need a new one, I don't know, Conquest's Law, whatever, um, that actually also does, does the same for Stalin. But nonetheless, think of what happened at the beginning of the Second World War. Stalin was certain that he had managed to basically win the Soviet Union a little bit more time to arm before the inevitable war with Nazi Germany, and although his own intelligence chiefs were telling him the Nazis are about to attack, people were coming across the border, you know, defectors from 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 the German side who were, com- were coming across the line the night before, saying we have orders, we'll be attacking tomorrow, and all of this stuff. Stalin absolutely refused to believe it. To a large extent, he thought this was. Again, once again, it it was the hateful British, um, you know, a British plot to try and trigger a a conflict between the Soviet Union and, and Germany. And then when it actually happened and his forces were absolutely shattered in the first days of the war, you know, he seemed to have something like a nervous breakdown. And for a couple of weeks, no one would see him. It might be that he thought that they, you know, that basically they... His, his peers would, would actually come and, and drag him off for execution, or maybe he just could not cope with the realities of what was going on. But one way or the other, there was this period, and then he emerges. He gives this sort of famous speech, which he invokes much, much less socialist, Marxist, Leninist um, rhetoric, and instead it's about brothers and sisters, sacred soil of our motherland, you know, already beginning to play the patriot card. But the point is, he was back. Now, I almost wonder if a similar process happened with Putin, but perhaps a less extreme one. You know, he didn't actually have a nervous breakdown, but, you know, at first he couldn't quite cope with it. Now he's internalised it. And, admittedly, now he's also letting the generals have much more of a control over the war. He's not trying to micromanage. But still, I'm not convinced that he's fully recognising the actual seriousness of the situation. That, yes, you have weathered the initial blitzkrieg, Putin... Yes, your forces now are making slow progress in the Donbass, but don't think for a moment that this is anything other than a question of how do you limit, moderate and make the best of what in grand strategic terms is and is certain to be a defeat. So bring it back to the question, I, I think that they may be making a mistake. It's, a short, it's short-termism. Um, it's all very well saying that we've we won, we've beaten the sanctions, but then what's going to happen when, as will inevitably take place, the real impact of economic slowdown begins to, 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 to happen? Now you can't then turn around and say, oh, it's all because of sanctions, with any great credibility. I mean, that's what they're going to do. I have no good doubt about that at all. But the point is that it becomes less plausible. We shouldn't assume that the Russians are morons. We shouldn't assume that the Russians, as if they were out of 1984 can be told that you're at war with Oceania today and then tomorrow be told that we have never been at war with Oceania. So they will remember that. And that's why I I think it is a mistake. But again, I think it fits into this wider pattern that I mentioned in the first part of how many national leaders outside of Ukraine are really being honest about the long term impacts. But that's it. That's a, a much wider issue. OK, the next question keeps us with Putin, but sort of moves it more towards sort of high politics. You know, how far has Ukraine changed the possibility that Putin is perhaps thinking about his own future and stepping back, you know, maybe even to appease those who think the war has gone badly? Well, to be honest, I think the war actually has pretty much guaranteed that Putin will want to remain, need to remain in his own eyes, in power for as long as he possibly can. And I think it's actually also a, a concatenation of the war and what happened in January in Kazakhstan. The point is this. Now, let me start with something that is very much my own speculation. That on one level, Putin was actually really looking for an out and quite possibly did not want to have to go through all that, that hassle of campaigning for the 2024 election. Because even with controlled and stage-managed elections, you, know, you still have to go through the motions. I think that he saw what he thought was going to be a quick and easy victory over Ukraine as the chance to absolutely consolidate his grand historic place in Russia's history as one of the the gatherers of the Russian lands, That precisely Belarus. Even with Lukashenko at the helm is essentially now a dependency and with a new proxy government in Kyiv even if it's perhaps just simply a, a rump Ukraine that sort of abandons the, the the western part, you know but nonetheless then he can say that he's brought the, the the great Russian nations together, and again, I'm just saying this is how he thinks of it rather than necessarily that I'm affirming it, and that that would give him the kind of status which makes him pretty much bulletproof that he then could ascend, you know, whether it's just simply retire or whether it's finding some kind of honorific position, that he could then ascend into the heavens and not have to worry about what his successors would, would do, you know, whether, whether they were going to go after him, whether they were going to use him as a scapegoat or whatever else. That's just my suspicion, based on the fact that, you know, well, why did he actually feel the need to invade at this point? However... If that's what he was thinking, I think he would have had a pretty sobering experience. First of all, as the dust settles on what happens in in Kazakhstan. In January, you had what was... Well, it's it's not quite sure whether it was entirely orchestrated unrest or whether it was unrest that was then exploited. But in effect, um, Nazarbayev, the former president of Kazakhstan that exactly had kind of carved out for himself this honorific father-of-the-nation kind of role, was forced to step down from his full-life position as head of the Security Council by his chosen successor and presumed crony, Tokayev. So, you know, again, that was actually a fairly alarming sign that even a position that seems to be for life is not necessarily for life in this kind of a system because you can always be forced to, to step down. Again, we, we go back to the... Splendid line from the old Bond film uttered by a drug baron to a sort of El Presidente in some sort of Latin American uh, narco state who said, remember, you're only president for life. So that in itself, I think, would, would have been a sort of a warning sign. But now, given what's happened in Ukraine and given the extent to which you know this really is Putin's war, And that same Security Council meeting, the televised Security Council meeting, that was presumably intended to implicate the whole swath of senior Russian leaders in this, actually, more than anything else, demonstrated precisely the degree to which this was Putin's war. That this was something that he was willing to bully and browbeat his own subordinates in order to make them go along with his plan. And I think there is an assumption on his part, which I think is probably an accurate assumption, which is that if he did step down, the risk is that whoever succeeded him would be tempted to use him as the scapegoat, would be tempted to throw him under the metro, whether it's internationally or whether it's domestically, in order to avoid the real consequences of, of the war. So, yeah, I think for this reason, you know, it's, it's unlikely to be Putin's own decision when he steps down. It's going to be his health, It's going to be mortality, or it's going to be the people around him who manage to, in good sort of men in grey suits style, uh, force him to step down. But of his own volition, I'm really not convinced it's going to happen now. So, who could step in? (laughs) A rather left field question, which for me is Will Russia revert to monarchy? Um, And and the idea is that. his Royal Highness Grand Duke George Mikhailovich, who, after all, is apparently the current heir apparent, you know, would actually be a sort of perfect figurehead for the Russian deep state. Um, and and Mikhailovich, you know, Oxford educated, works for Nordnuclear. Um, apparently, sort of quite bullish on the Crimean annexation. I don't know if that's the case, but he certainly did uh, visit Crimea after the annexation. You know, wouldn't he be a a sort of perfect? Uh, Figure to 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 institute. Well, I'm I'm really not sure whether actually bringing in a constitutional monarchy is is really on the cards. I can see the appeal to 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 a degree, but again, if we think about it, it it's it's about first of all power. I mean, even a constitutional figurehead, you know very much depends on the figurehead's willingness to obey the unwritten constitution thereof. I mean, it's quite interesting how the debate about the potential succession in the UK, a country which obviously has a much, much more settled uh, understanding of, of the role of the monarchy, but even even here, the degree to which the succession might lead to constitutional tussles over precisely what is appropriate for the monarch to do or say... Um, so I think you know, one, I could see a bunch of those deep state figures being rather more cautious um, about that. Secondly, I think it's also worth noting that I think there is quite a, a resistance, which may be a sort of vestigial ideological thing, to the monarchy. On the one hand, there's obviously a lot of fascination. There is still this kind of... And again, I say this as someone you know, speaking in his kitchen in the United Kingdom... Um, sort of bizarre fascination with the, the, the trivia of the lives of, of the uh, crowned heads. But on the other hand, I mean, for example, when in 2021, at the wedding of uh, Grand Duke Mikhailovich and his Italian spouse, there was an honour guard of Russian soldiers, you know, sort of with their sabres out providing a suitable arch for the couple to walk through, all very picturesque and so forth. Defence Minister Shoigu was actually really annoyed that this had happened and disciplined the officers in charge. And you think, well, well why? I mean, if nothing else, uh, the, the abuse of military assets for personal services is something that Shoigu and all of his predecessors have not been averse to themselves. Um, but again, I, th- I think it does re- represent the fact that although Marxism-Leninism as an ideology is basically dead and gone, Nonetheless, some some of the values are still sort of steeped in the assumptions. And this idea that accidents of birth should bring such privilege, I still think for some it is actually something that they find very difficult to really come to terms with. Ironically enough, even as they probably elevate their own sons and daughters to wholly undeserved positions in government departments or banks or whatever else. So I think, no, I think for those reasons, although it's it's a cute idea... I don't think it's going to happen. And very, very finally, when will Russia allow foreign tourists from unfriendly countries, particularly the United States, to return? And what kind of reception are they likely to get from Russians? Well, look, good news. You can. There is, at the moment, no obstacle on applying for a tourist visa to the Russian Federation. Now, there are all kinds of practical obstacles to actually getting there. And... Don't expect necessarily your credit cards to work there, and so forth. But you know, if you if you're if you're determined to go, and it seems ironic that uh, as someone whom the buggers have now banned, I'm actually talking up the idea of 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 people travelling there. But no, if if you're interested in going, you can go, and I say you should go. A because it's a fascinating country and a particularly fascinating time. B because I mean, look. Obviously, times change, but if I think of my own experiences of Russia, even at time when, for example, in 2014, when we had the first wave of sanctions following the Crimean annexation, my experience of even when Russians felt the need to treat me as an avatar of the entire West, and to tell me precisely why the West was wrong in its responses, even then it was frankly more in sorrow than in anger. It was basically, don't you understand that we' actually had right on our side and that we're really all, you know part of the same cultural community and whatever else, rather than actually anything more than that. So look, I mean again, who knows? But my, my suspicion is that if anything, you, you, you'd be surprised that, in fact, Russians, even Russians who think that you, you represent a, a hostile bloc, but actually they, they won't take that out on you. But the last reason why I think that anyone who's contemplating it and, you know, is is willing to put up with the the logistical challenges thereof um, is that actually we should not meekly participate and collaborate in Putin's attempted North Koreanization of his own country. The truth of the matter is that soft power is something that we've got and Putin's not got, not in any meaningful sense. So actually, the the thought of Westerners still being there, the thought that we can say, look, we don't like what your government is doing, but we do not have anything against Russia and Russians, in even the smallest microscopic way, I, I, I think is a, is a good thing. But look, that's just my own opinions. But certainly, if that's what you want to do, you certainly can do it anyway I will stop now and I think what we'll do is I've got I've still got a few more questions that, that I want to tackle but rather than continuing inflict uh, these sort of again magazine-like programs probably the, the next episode will be a much more conventional one and I will tackle the remaining questions in the episode after that but thanks very much indeed to all of you who did engage my apologies to those of you whose questions I haven't yet got to or that in some cases I won't get to because there are things that I will sort of basically roll into to other conversations and as ever thank you for listening well that's the end of another episode of the in moscow shadow podcast just as a reminder beyond this you can follow my blog also called in moscow shadows follow me on twitter at mark Gagliotti, or facebook mark Galliotti on russia this podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons and you too can be one Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.